Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I am super excited for today's episode. I've got three past guests joining me, and each of these guests have been some of our most commented and most popular episodes that we've had. They've each started their own farm and ranch from scratch and uh, relatively recently as uh, as well. So I, uh, I asked them to come on and join me for a bit of a panel discussion here to talk about starting a ranch. And as I mentioned, they're all past guests. So if you want to hear their past episodes, we're going to do a short introduction. But I think uh, the best way to really get to know these folks is to listen to their episodes where we dive deep into their operations individually. Uh, you can check them out. Vanny Collins uh, on episode 79. We've got Sage Askin on episode 125 and, and Christopher Baggett on episode 137. So uh, go back and take a listen to those. But I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say and sharing some of their wisdom for getting started. Um, but thank you guys so much for joining me again and, and welcome back to the Herd Quitter podcast. Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Jared. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's just, it's fun to, to get to see y'all. And, and this is a topic I've, I'm always interested in, in hearing kind of, uh, what people are most interested in. And I think one of my most popular kind of topics that always gets a lot of response and comments is this idea of starting a ranch from scratch. I have kind of a young, younger listener base, younger audience. Well, I have a range. It's awesome that I can check out kind of age bases. Sometimes there's people like 80 plus and I'm like, that's fantastic. I don't even know. I can barely work a phone and he's 80 plus listening to this podcast. So I love it. But um, the topic of starting a ranch from scratch yeah. is one of the more popular ones that always gets a lot of listens. And so there's clearly a lot of people out there who are interested and want to do this and thought it would be a cool topic to dive into with you three. Um, but maybe as a way to just get us started, uh, for those who haven't listened to those past episodes or forgotten, uh, maybe I'll start with an introduction from each of you guys where you talk a little bit about where you're from, uh, the enterprise mix that you have, and, and you know, any, a little bit about yourself as well. And we'll just start with, uh, with you, Vanny. Great. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, so I'm Vanny Collins, and I ranch down here in South Texas, a few miles, uh, maybe 15 miles north of the border. My business model is uh, primarily cow-calf, but I've kind of vertically integrated all the way through feeding. Hmm. So a little bit more about where I ranch. I ranch at least some country from my family down here in the Rio Grande Valley, and I'm kind of on the northwestern edge of the Rio Grande Valley in a pretty semi-arid, subtropical-type area. It's been pretty drought-prone these last few years, and uh, it's kind of like... I would say it's probably pretty similar to most of the West, uh, pretty sparsely populated, pretty low stocking rates, big country, kind of right on the edge of big ranch country. Yeah, I'll have to listen back to your episode, but I think even in that one, you maybe talked about with your management, you, you've even increased stocking rate in these drought years from where it had started prior, which is pretty cool too. So a little plug to go back and listen to that, that episode. Yeah. It shares how awesome the work you're doing there is. Um We'll move next. I guess I'm just kind of going in order of the folks we interviewed in the order we interviewed you. Sage, uh, if you want to give an introduction to yourself and, and your context out there uh, out west. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Jared. Um, yes, my name is Sage Askin, and together with my wife and three kids, 
Uh, we live in East Central Wyoming, and uh, we have kind of a it, it's a really unique, I think, blend. Um, we have three primary businesses. We our main business is our operating business, Region LLC, which is a an ag services business, is essentially that uh, custom grazes livestock for clients, and it. Uh, professionally manages land for landowners and it kind of brings those together into symbiosis. And then we have a livestock ownership business and uh, we also have a uh, uh, real estate business that's kind of fledgling. And so we kind of bring those three things together and that's, that's what we, we do. And we, uh, our, our big mission here is uh, for region LLC, our operating business is to understand, regenerate and thrive. And we're really trying to bring those three things together. And we use grazing management uh, as well as stockmanship. And we've really gotten focused on people management in this last few years, mm-hmm. having to deal with employees and such. So yeah. that's kind of what we're doing and what we're about. Yeah, I really like how you've defined your different enterprises and you kind of clearly separate them. I'm sure that helps a lot in making business plans for each one individually. Can you talk a little bit in the operating business, what enterprises, what livestock mix you maybe have there? And um yeah, and maybe in your livestock ownership Absolutely. too. Sure. Yes. Uh, so Region LLC is capable of cattle, sheep, and goats of varying classes. In the summertime, I think I can say of all classes that could be turned out on range or pasture. And in wintertime, uh, we trim back to less, you know, winter, more, you know, more mature cows, mature breeding stock sheep and such like that. Uh, yeah. And... And we can handle those at scale. So, so we'll have a. Uh, this summer we had a herd of goats. We had four, I guess, five bands of sheep out on the range, and then we had lots of herds of cow calf pairs as well as stalker cattle that we operate for other people. And then asking livestock, um, we are investors in livestock pretty much anymore centered around sell by marketing of whatever is the best thing to be in at that moment in time. And so sure. uh, right now we're actually exiting our cattle position and moving towards a sheep position primarily with that. So, awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And then Chris, uh, share a little bit about the your operation. Sure. Um, uh, our business is Tyner Pond Farm. Uh, we are a direct to consumer grass-fed beef. Uh, we do pastured poultry, um, which we do on our properties. And then uh, uh, we also partner with um, uh, a couple of local hog producers that um, raise pasture-raised hogs. So we sell through our system and we're also dabbling in raw dairy right now as well. Right. But um, we're in central Indiana. We're very fortunate in our geography that we're only about 30 miles from the city of Indianapolis. So we, we don't really ship. We deliver um, on routes uh, within about 70 miles from our farm. Yeah. which we have a pretty decent sized population, which is nice. Man, that's awesome. And I'm excited to hear about the raw dairy thing too. It seems like it's specifically in like grass-fed beef and pastured pork. There's so many people out there doing it, but very few in the the, the dairy side. So I'm excited to hear how that goes for you long-term. I think there's going to be a ton of potential. That's that's exciting. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Yeah, cool. Um well, that's awesome. That's a great, great, uh, great short intro. Um, I think when a lot of people start thinking about getting into the ranch business, some of the questions that I've had a lot of people reach out to me, and that's where a lot of these questions will come from is questions that people ask me about. And it's funny because they'll ask me thinking I'm some sort of an expert. It's like, hey, I, I have a podcast so I can talk to the experts and ask them the questions. So that's what I'm going to do here today. Um, but one of the first questions I get is, 
access to land. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough tough conversation. Is how do we get access to any sort of land, and each have kind of a unique uh, path into that. And so I'm wondering if we can start off with just talking a little bit about how you went about finding land, sourcing it, you know, choosing lease versus ownership. Uh, and then, you know, maybe as the business model progressed, did that change? Uh, did, or did that kind of, uh, what you started off kind of, is that carried through through today? And we'll go backwards, I guess, this time, if you wouldn't mind starting, Chris. Uh, well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think the world has changed dramatically in 12 months. Mm. Um you know, we um, bought our first farm. So we decided we want to do this around 2009, 2010, had read The Omnivore's Dilemma, um, um, which got us into the rabbit hole of Joel Salatin, you know, kind of the hero of that book. So I read all of Joel's books. And there was this farm that had been for sale for a couple of years. And very rundown, corn and soybean is what we have here. Like that's our that's our environment, right? So um, but this had like a falling down house, a bunch of old outbuildings. It was like half grass, half soybeans at the time. And um, and we decided we were going to take the plunge. And again, in those days, 2010, um, interest rates were low, coming out of the Great Recession of 2008. Um, so we were able to buy that farm, about 75 acres, $4,500 an acre. Wow. Um, wow. In the nice um, state. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and and literally, there's a farm next door to me, 127 acres, going for eighteen thousand seven hundred and twenty-five is their asking per acre. So, yeah, uh, so times have changed, but yeah. Um, so we 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 got into business small. Um, we started um, as again direct marketers. So you know, have a website. We have a local processor. You know, we started doing maybe make two or three animals a month. Um, we're now doing four a week. Um, and we're up to about oh, probably 800 or so acres, grazable acres. Mm. Uh, you know, the hard part for us is the conversion time it takes to take, you know, we're in a very humid environment to use Alan Savory's if, if, if uh, I'm sorry, Vanny is on the, on the brittleness scale, you know, um, we're, we're in a much better position as far mm. as lots and lots of grass and the ground is really, really productive. But um it takes a long time to get it that way. Um, and, and now, so anyway, so over the years, we acquired more farms, more land. Um, now we're kind of switching our model to working with um, more custom grazing kind of folks, right? So um, sure. as our herd expands and it doesn't make economic sense for us to acquire land anymore, now we're looking at leases and, um, and also working with partners who may have grass um, you know, we're just working with the new young farmer who has family land, um, whose dad is starting to retire. He's coming out of 20 year career in the army, um, loves regenerative agriculture, spent the summer with us. And we're actually buying cows, bread heifers, bread cows, putting them on his farm and paying him a daily rate to graze them. So it's mm. giving him a low cost way to convert his family land from corn and soybeans into grass. And um, and we'll we'll grow with him. He has around 150 acres. So we'll you know, we'll try and grow with him so we don't have to own the land. He's already got the land. He wants to get out of the corn and soybean cycle, if that all makes sense. I'll stop there. And if there are more sure. questions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And Sage, what about what about you? Uh, So 
we're in a little different environment where we're in rural Wyoming, you know, and everywhere we operate doesn't have a population base. And so, and then especially we're in the West. So we're, everything we operate is West of the, most of what we operate is West of the 100th Meridian and the stuff that we operate is just a little bit across the 100th Meridian, you know, over there in Eastern Nebraska. So, so I think we're driven by the arid land kind of the, that I don't want to say ethics, but kind of the way things are out here, the culture is kind of shaped by that just lack of people. There's more animals than people. And so it, it changes kind of land availability. I see out here a lot of untapped potential in unused land. So there's lots Mm -hmm. of land not being operated at full stocking rate potential. Uh, There's a lot of land that's just not operated at all. There's a lot of CRP land that's just, uh, in fact, lots of it's been owned by supposedly out of nation, you know, certainly out of state investors that, Mm -hmm. that control that for an investment, you know, and then just pick up the ROI on it and then sell it in 10 years or 20 years or 50. And so, um, you know, so I think there's just tons of potential there. And what we've found is access to land is all about solving a problem for somebody and it's all about relationships. And so our current model allows us to, I think, operate land closer to the ideals of what somebody wants. So our, our, our landlords to a T are, they, they fit the description. They're, they're essentially a client of ours. So we've kind of studied who they are as a person and they're all somebody who needs, they have too much land. They can't operate it themselves. They're, they're usually a generation removed from being in operations, but they aren't wanting to do the management. So they don't want to field a management team. They don't want to have a big group of people there so we can fill that void. And I think that that's going to become more in the future as people get more compartmentalized as another generation takes over ownership of these lands. And then, uh, people are, you know, but, but I still don't think a lot of people want to sell their heritage, you know? So there's, there's a good, there's a niche there for expert ranch managers, but there's also a niche there for expert ranch managers who want to be kind of the tenant model, you know, which is what we are, you know? Mm -hmm. So in doing that, it's, it's, uh, I think that, you know, we're, we're also willing to do something different. You know, I just see, I see opportunity everywhere. I, it feels to me like the next 10 years, there's going to be just a crushing amount of land coming on the market that mm-hmm. they need. I, I mean, I know right now, can you imagine what an ad placed in an ag newspaper that said something to the effect of, are you willing to, do you want to finally exit at the top of the cattle market, you know, and get your land in good hands and set something up? I mean, I think you'd have hundreds of people you know wanting to do something like that and and so it's a it's a perfect time um i think it's healthy to lease most of your land um certainly from business as i've learned more about business i've realized like the model of ownership of land and operating it is a pretty poor model um as far as cash flow it's a great wealth management model later on in your career later on in life and so i think our model is always going to be about 75 percent plus lease land and 25 percent you know uh owned land now if we exit operations we may start to change that ratio as time goes on um you know but but as far as from a startup perspective you really ought to pick one spot to put capital whether it's in livestock or in land and you probably shouldn't split that of course if it cash flows that's really what matters um we didn't buy for six years and uh when we did buy that one cash flowed one year out of four that we owned it we we've recently sold that and we've done another um, it, what I'm saying is 25% cash flowing is probably pretty close to the norm and the reality. And, mm. and that was hard because I could talk myself into that I could cash flow it better than that. 
but the I'm just looking backwards. I, it's easier to see the real facts. And yeah. we've dang near got ourselves in trouble trying to pay for too much land as a too high of a proportion of what we're doing. So sure. I've just learned to be rational about it, make sure it cash flows. I don't mind subsidizing it from after-tax profits from the operating business. That's what it's for is to put into land to accumulate wealth and accumulate that and then hopefully snowball it you know, by leasing that back to operations at, at fair market value, you know, but separating those, those businesses is key to all of that. And so like emotionally to separate that is just really hard for most people. I know it's hard for me and I've had to set it up that way so that it's separate and we have to write checks and it's a bookkeeping nightmare, you know, at times, but, but that's, that, that's the way we've got to do it and we've got to treat it. So I got to take off my, you know, operations hat and put on my land ownership hat different times of the year and really even each week as we're doing strategic things. And yeah. so I think that's what'll lead to a healthy business going forward. But as far as access, the one thing you'll hear that I've just been an advocate of like just dispelling this myth is that there's no opportunity out there. There's opportunity out there. It's not opportunity the way I pictured it and probably the way you all picture it. You mm. know, there there's there's little untapped resources all over this great nation that you can make use out of, you know, and and I think regionality drives what you do where we are, uh, you know, there's lots of opportunity in, in unused land or land that we can bid at fair market rates and we can suddenly we can do better with it because we're really good grazers. So, mm. yeah. I'm, I'm curious. You just mentioned that like 75, 25%, like, did you find that that's kind of like, it requires the profit from 75% of the land to afford to make the payments on 25%. That's just kind of the ratio that you found in your region to work out. Yeah, that's our current model. And it's, you know, it's taken me 10 years to even come up with a model, Jared, but it's, it's, uh, but that's exactly right. That's based off of past research. You know, we're, we've done a lot of really close to cash flow and land and just not quite, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, ba- going off the very simple metric that one year and four, I was able to cash flow land from the production <laughs> from that land. It's like, well, I need mm-hmm. 75% to be leased, I think, to sustain this. Yeah. And, it, and, and we've never, we've never reached 25% land ownership, but, um, but I think that we could, and that, that, I think that's the working model that we're working with now. If anything, it's maybe should be higher, should be 90% lease land to own yeah. land to be, you know, and the other thing to look at is ROI on land being really close to negative from a cash <laughs> perspective, um, as opposed, you know, the, the ROI is in appreciation, right? You know, and so as you, as you put all that together, like when, when you're not a capital intensive, you, you don't have the wealth yet. We don't have the wealth yet. Like we can't afford to fit, act like we have the wealth, you know, so we can't afford to be fully invested into land. So yeah, yep. no, that makes sense. Yeah. Vanny, and what's your thoughts on, you know, access land as a, as a beginner and whatnot? Yeah. Thanks Sage. And thanks Christopher. Those are really good. Uh, it hits me. I'm honored to be with you or to be asked to be on this panel with you guys. Cause y'all are, y'all are really impressive and doing a lot of awesome things. Um, uh, you know, when I was, I guess when I was starting out, I was in a position where I came down to begin to work in the management of some kind of investment land or like some, some family ranches that my, my family had, and they weren't really actively participating in the management and they hadn't ever, uh, really for that matter. And so I came down and started working in this ranch management company that was already managing uh, various ranches across Texas. And I ended up, you know, very similar to what Sage was describing. There is a 
There is a real appreciation for land with some of these family members and owners, but there is no desire really to own and operate a cattle business or a livestock enterprise that really manages the forage resources and the land. So I guess really what I was seeing was this this opportunity to take advantage of and fill a void, uh, exactly like Sage was talking about, but within my family, uh, really more and, uh, you know, and kind of touching on along some of the other the other ideas, you know, I could relate a lot to Christopher when he was talking about getting into Joel Salatin. And, you know, as I was kind of, Joel Salatin was a big part of my journey and finally getting up the courage to begin farming and ranching and really kind of working towards this direction. And yeah, it's just, just really good stuff. Kind of like touching on what Sage was was uh, touching on as well. Another theme is, you know, my wife and I, we ranch out here an hour and a half from town and it's, uh, there's plenty of opportunity out here. There are plenty of big ranches with plenty of, of, uh, you know, third parties leasing them where the ownership is not running cattle, but it's just for an hour and a half from town. You know, it's the opportunities out here. It's kind of about prioritizing what's important and it's not always the easiest choice, but you, you go where you're guided kind of listening to, to your inner voice you kind of pray about it you you get with your family and you, you kind of go where what's important and i think what the biggest uh the biggest thing to finding land for me was just getting started in ranching and initially it was working for my family and i was out here in the country and i was seeing opportunity i was getting to meet other landowners i was becoming a known entity you know i was starting to build uh not a reputation but like people could start to associate a, a name to my face and I wasn't just some random guy. Now I was a, I was a part of the community and, uh, you know, there's some, some of our neighbors, I have friends out here who ranch, uh, uh they lease big ranches, you know, some of them are like 60,000 acre ranches and it is just, anybody could, could go get that as long as you had, you know, solid values. And I guess so long as you're able to pay your bills, you're, yeah. you're well known and you, yeah. you take care, you take care of the land. But that land is available to anyone. I there's countless ranches down here that are like that, you know, that size. So really, uh, the way I found my land personally was I saw a void in my family and in, in some assets they had, which are these ranches, which, you know, nobody, nobody in the family was actively managing. You know, my father uh, was kind of managing the managers, mm-hmm. but um, there was really... I don't know. It was very serendipitous. And I, I'm not sure if I touched on this in the uh, prior podcast, but uh, it just really was uh, a miracle, a God thing that I was able to come down here when I was. And right before I'd come down here, the prior manager had retired and that was, I had no idea about that. And it was literally within 24 hours they retired. And I kind of talked to my parents about it and approached them about coming down here to, to work. Uh but there was that void in the, you know, these ranches and the service say you, you touch, you touch on it. It is 100%. You, recreation drives the boat down here mm-hmm. and holistic management is so good about this and touching on the social aspect, you know, you have to, it is all about relationships, exactly what Sage was saying. And you have to offer something. You have to take into consideration every Everybody who's got a stake in, in uh, if, whether you're leasing a piece of land or you're looking to lease a place a, or to lease a, uh, a piece of land, you need to offer um, 
really, you need to really take into consideration what that landowner is looking for. And you have to provide a service and really make sure everybody's needs are being fulfilled. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a really good point on just like the social aspect. It, it, the idea of finding land, a lot of people think it should just be as easy, I don't know, as putting an ad or going out and trying to you know source it. But you kind of have to be a person that people want to lease to as well and, and developing the character or the, and the management skills that people come to you and say, I see how you manage this. Let me or please yeah. manage this, you know, what I've gotten stuff too. It's, it's more than just you know, things don't just stumble into you either. Part of it is is what you've done to put yourself in the position. And I like to, it's, it's interesting. I think one of the, I, at the ranching for profit school that I went to, I don't remember how the conversation got started. There was this, somehow the topic got brought up of like, uh, kind of landowners from the city, you know, non-active operating landowners got brought up and it got intense. There were people pretty fired up about that and pretty pissed off and you know in reality saying you know this is outrageous now we have to compete with these people to own it and it's like that's one perspective but you made the point and well of the the opportunity in that is like you know maybe a new and beginning rancher never would have had the opportunity to buy that place anyway never but now because the person who's buying it isn't the big rancher next door it's the guy from the city who is not wanting to operate it now there's an opportunity for maybe a potential beginning person to get into it uh, a, right. And I think that's an opportunity to start talking to the beginning farmer about, right? Mm -hmm. To approach this a little more entrepreneurially, right? How would you do a startup? And and I can only speak to East um, and our environment here. So for all of your listeners who are, you know, anywhere from Iowa to Massachusetts, right? Um, this is what I'm thinking. And this is what I'm going to try and do. Um, for this land next door to me at $18,725 an acre. Um, I still want it, right? I can't do it. So what I'm going to try and do is put together a fund, get investors, not in our Tyner Pond meat business, but in just land appreciation. So the pitches to people, high net worth individuals. Um, and I've had really good success in other businesses raising money from you know the old friends and family yeah. So, you know, just, you know, a great way to fundraise a startup of any kind is small amounts of money from lots and lots of people, right? Not necessarily crowdsourcing, but your doctors, your lawyers, your your rich uncle, your, you know, just raising money in $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 checks um, from a lot of people to put together a fund, not for the business, but for the land. And then, you know, we're going to take this land that is degraded corn and soybean land, and we're going to turn it into a paradise, right? Like a biodiverse, carbon sequestering, whatever box you want to check. Um, this land is going to be vastly improved over time. So with 10-year contracts, 20-year contracts, the land, the land owners, the investors are going to get that land appreciation. That's why they're doing it. Not for the cash flow of me leasing it. I'm not going to lease it. In fact, my pitch is going to be, you're going to pay me to manage it for you, right? And to turn it into this paradise. And, um, you know, this is not carbon offsets or anything like that, because I don't think that business is fully matured yet. But this is just very, very hypothetical. But you know, as a young farmer starting out, just like any young startup, I would say, hey, you've got this highly appreciating asset, which is land. 
um, at least in our environment. Now, you know, Sage, it sounds like they're going to be dumping land out there soon. But, you know, here, as I told you, 10 years ago, $4,500 acres are now $18,000 acres. Where is that going to end? And as the West dries out, as the Oligala Reservoir depletes, you know, is that going to make Eastern land much, much more valuable? And that's kind of how we're going to be pitching investors is, you know, that, you know, it's pretty tenuous out there. If you're in Western Kansas, Panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, um, I feel terrible, right? I don't know what the answer is, right? We had the Dust Bowl. We salvaged the Dust Bowl by pumping water. That's finite, right? That's not going to go on forever. So farmland in the Midwest, what I call the Midwest, which might include you, Jordan or Jared, that 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 land is going to skyrocket in value beyond yeah. what it's already skyrocketed. So to me, it's like gather up investors who can see that vision of land appreciation and allow you to manage it um, holistically, regeneratively. Um, you know, I think that's a good. I think that's going to be a very viable path. Hmm. I'll let you know. <laughs> Interesting. You know. Well, one thing I'll touch on, and, and Chris, you know, thinking out of the box, finding some other solution to structure it is a great, kind of makes me think of it. When I started out, I was real dogmatic that I wanted cows to pay for land mm-hmm. and I wanted to grow my land base. And I hurt some relationships in the process and I hurt some family relationships. And it's, as I've matured and uh, probably worked uh, a lot more than whenever I started out. And I've kind of got some humility knocked into me, you know, finding a creative solution like Chris is talking about or, or swallowing that like, Hey, I'm only comfortable with 25% of an own land base. Like that is being able to, to not be so dogmatic and to be open-minded about finding a solution that ultimately meets your, your goals. And, and maybe if you have investors or, or whoever, whoever's goals, like, you start to find out what's really important and um man i don't mind offering on lease land it is it's nice not having that that uh the debt payment but at the same time you know my cows are buying land me and my wife bought our first piece of land last year and you know cows are paying for that congrats Uh, that's awesome yeah thank you yeah up until now our cows have always paid for our land our business has been able to fund a farm cash flow enough Mm have a down payment, 3% mortgages, like that worked for us for 13 years. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work at 8% yeah. interest rates and $18,000 acres. Yeah. Benny? Chris, what is, is that, is that uh, increase in land value slowed down at all now that interest rates are picking up? It has. Um, you know, I, uh, most expensive acre I ever bought, I bought $40,000 and I was like, I'm never doing that again. Um, and, and, um, and then it's, then it suddenly leaped and and what is it called a 1301 exchange or something like that 10, 1031 yeah yeah okay yeah i got dyslexia but yeah so <laughs> you know apparently people think that there's a lot more money from investors out there so you know the local farmers they're not happy about it at all right but i don't play in that corn and soybean game anyway um you know so if someone wants to buy land at $18,000 somebody needs to manage it um, I can't afford to do that with cows, but if you can afford to do it and hope that that's going to go to $30,000 an acre in 10 years, um, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be part of your team. I will manage it for you, which mm-hmm. sounds a little more like what Sage is doing. 
No, I I I, I like the creative creative perspective. I, I think that's going to be important as like similar to here. We're not quite to eighteen thousand yet, but land has gone from six to fourteen in a matter of twenty four months. <laughs> it's ridiculous, yeah. and so you got to be creative or or something. But I also like just the the idea. Vanny and and Sage both talked about it and both did the same thing. Where you know. And I think Sage in your episode, you shared too, that your original goal, you thought you were going to go out and buy land right away. And I think that's probably a pretty common perspective that a lot of people have is, you know, to be in ranching. And I've had people ask me that, you know, via the Instagram and different things too. So, you know, like I want to go buy land and I'm like, maybe hold your horses. That's probably shouldn't be your first goal. Or maybe, maybe it is depending on your situation, but let's talk about what, what it's going to take to get there. And the, the humility, the patience to be able to put that on hold can be difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's never going to happen. And I got to remind myself of that sometimes too. I've watched land go by and think, gosh, that's the last time I'm ever going to be able to buy. And I'm like, oh, you know, it, it'll it happen. It'll happen in its time. But if you do it at the wrong time, you know, uh, that can that can put you, you're in a real tight position that'll limit your ability to grow your business and ability to really do just about anything, I imagine. So. Well, any other thoughts on the land access topic that uh, that any of you want to share before we jump into the next one that I've got? Awesome. All right. So the next question that I've got for you then is, you know, land aside, you've got access to land, whether you saved up and bought it or you uh, you you uh, um, lease it or something like that. Uh, I'm curious, each of your enterprise selection, you know, how did you decide which enterprises you were going to start with? And this might tie into it. So I'll ask it now. And if it's not, that's fine too. But uh, so what enterprise did you decide you want to go with? And then what did you prioritize investing in at the beginning? Was it the livestock for said enterprise or was it, you know, other assets or something else or or infrastructure, I guess. So um, yeah. And I'll open up to I don't know, anybody who wants to dive in on that one first. I'll be glad to start because I think we're very, you know, we, again, we kind of started off with the Salatin model um stacking multiple enterprises on a smaller piece of property um direct marketing you know my background has been the internet um so you know we really piled in on on getting customers right you know acquiring customers and building our website facebook insta now you have google my business which is an amazing underutilized free tool um, from Google, because that's really where most people go, right? Grass-fed beef near me. I want to win that, you know, farmer eggs. I want to win those searches, right? So, you know, devoting time and energy, and it's not really a lot of money, um, into that direct marketing channel um, is really what, you know, pays dividends. And then, you know, we we foolishly, um, you know, I thought, well, I have, I'm going to make this grass. And we did meat, chickens, eggs, um, got some pigs, but I thought I'd get into why go. I thought, okay, you know, let's what my my fixed cost is the grass, right? So why not get the most expensive beef? And we went around the country and put together this very expensive herd of of Wagyu cows and brought them from Montana and Wyoming and Texas and put them out on our pasture. And they looked at me like, what the f do you expect me to do here? Right? <laughs> they were so wrong genetically for what we were trying to do. And that was just our own ignorance. I have no farm background, no agricultural background. I read the book, watched a bunch of YouTubes and, and we hit this. Um, you know, I brought Greg Judy out. I happened to meet Greg at a, at a conference and, 
you know, uh, as a consultant, he came out and, you know, his famous line to me was, why do you want to feed all that leg? You know, <laughs> and, and um, you know, kind of taught me about cattle genetics. We're now mostly South Poles. Um, we're, we're no more Wagyu left. I think we have one calf out there that that still has big long horns that is probably a third generation removed from South Pole or from the Wagyu. So, you know, we paid some expensive genetic lessons in the beginning. So I'd advise anyone starting off in grass um, to get the right genetics. Don't go to the auction and buy a bunch of dairy cows or, you know, we've done all that and it's a big mistake. But, um, you know, I think, you know, focusing on, for us, we're in the meat business and focusing on your direct marketing, maintaining your expenses, right? Chicken are the easiest, right? You can get into chicken quickly. You can get them to market quickly. When, when you get started, pigs are also easy. You know, they they can come to market very quickly. You can find feeder pigs, usually in most environments. Again, I'm speaking of east of you guys, but, you know, and that's something you can start to monetize very quickly. One of the things we did because, and I, I think for a lot of you folks out in rural areas, we built a fulfillment store closer into Indianapolis. So it's not at the farm, you know, it's still out far enough that it's cheap rent, but we put in our coolers and our freezers there. So we're within striking distance of town of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So our meat goes from the farm and we now have six farms to the processor, which is about 15 minutes away from it. The Then it, from the store, or from the processor, we take it to, we call it the store because we have store hours from eight to 12, but mostly it's a fulfillment center. It's just where our orders get packed. Our routes get made every day. So, you know, um, Vinny, you said you're an hour from town. I don't know what town that is. Is that Dallas or is that? Uh, no, I mean, it, it, no, it's a, it's McAllen. So in our, in our border region, our, our MSA, we've probably got 7 million people of which probably 4 million of those are on the Mexican side. Okay. 3 million are in Texas. Very different demographics. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about our MSA is about 3 million, but we just had to move closer to them to do routes versus trying to ship off the farm. We wanted to deliver. It's way less expensive, you know, to deliver. So we had to have kind of this island fulfillment center right that isn't the farm that you know is managed by a different group of people that you know they just manage the website take the orders do customer service pack the bags and then we run out you know usually we're doing you know anywhere from 30 to 50 deliveries a day you know we're right at about like a million a million and a half dollar business wow so nothing crazy but Hey folks, so I've got three fantastic guests on this episode. You know, one's a large-scale cow-calf producer, another is a large-scale custom grazer, and then Chris is, you know, really killing it on the direct marketing business. And I'm not sure what model you want to run for your business, but if you want to be a direct marketer, you got to have a good website, a good e-commerce platform, and and the one that we use on our farm is Barn to Door. It really does everything we need it to do from helping us with our direct sales both online and in person it's our inventory management software scheduling system you know it it takes care of our subscriptions and and bulk boxes everything everything we need to do for our direct sales we can do through barn to door and we absolutely love it so if that's something you're interested in trying 
I would recommend you go and check it out and you can go to www.barntodore.com forward slash herd quitter and you can learn more about the success we've had using Barn to Door. And if you choose to sign up, you'll get access to a free academy session. That's a $99 value. Again, you can find that at www.barntodore.com forward slash herd quitter. And that link will be in the show notes below. But now back to my conversation. So, well, I'm curious specifically for you, Chris, you talked about like investing in the first thing you invested in kind of was the business model or like building out this marketing. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of interesting. I'm curious if you would all separate your wholesale production business from your your market business. And if you think that it might be a good idea, like it, it could be possible. And I don't know if this is something people should do, but as I think you could almost build a marketing business before you ever even start the production at all. You know, source it entirely from other people, build a marketing enterprise. And then, because you said when you talked about purchasing land, that it was your marketing enterprise that had been able to cash flow land at that time. And it's different now, but do you think it would be wise for someone beginning to almost build a direct marketing enterprise before they ever, you know, buy their first cow or, or raise their first hog or anything like that? Well, there are lots of marketplaces out there, right? I mean, it's super easy to set up and become Butcher Box or, you know, Crowd Cow or any local variation of that, of which we've probably got three or four even right here in the Indianapolis area. So I think it's really important for the customer to be the farmer. Um, yeah, it's all, you know, I think if you're going to pitch this like a startup, which I think is what young farmers are going to have to do. I think the upside of this is the land appreciation for the investor, and you're going to pay your part of it by your marketing, right? By your direct consumer access. What's 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 happening here is, you know, I use the music analogy a lot, right? If anyone's familiar with Chris Anderson, who invented TED Talk, he he came up with this analogy of the long tail for the internet. And he's basically talking about music and he's like, look, we used to need Best Buy or Virgin Megastore to curate our music for us, right? There were 5,000 songs you could buy at Best Buy. And if, and if they didn't get played on the radio and you couldn't find that CD in Best Buy, you're not listening to that song, right? And then along came iTunes and online streaming. Now I have over 5 million songs as a consumer I can listen to. But what that's also done is not only give the consumer more choice, it's empowered tens of thousands of musicians that if they didn't make it to the radio, they're playing weddings or they're out of the business by the time they're 30. Now there are bands that you never heard of that make $10 million a year. And there are tens of thousands of those bands. The same thing is happening with food, right? We used to need the grocery store to curate our food for us. You look at Will Harris, he just wrote the book, right? And his tragedy of educating publics and Whole Foods on grass-fed beef, creating this market, and then they pull the rug out of them immediately as soon as they can get cheap grass-fed beef from Australia, right? Um, you know, But now you can go direct to the consumer. You couldn't do this 20 years ago. But today, the consumer they don't care where the food comes from. They don't need Kroger to do this for them anymore. So all we have to do is get in front of them and say, hey, push this button. It's going to show up at your door um, and we can deliver for free. I can't afford to ship for free, but I can deliver for free. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, that's the business model in the context of a superhuman environment of the East with large population center. Yeah. Pretty cool what you guys have done. Um I'm 
curious, Vanny, uh, when you started, I think you said you wanted to be in the cow-calf business and stuff right off the bat. What were the things that you prioritized? I don't know what capital you came into this with or what you know you were accessing as far as leverage and stuff. What did you say, this is what I need first and and second? And you know, how did you prioritize investing those limited dollars? Yeah. So I guess, number one, I was still uh, still had an employment position as uh, the ranch managers or a ranch as a ranch manager for my family. And I was leasing land from them on the side. And so everything I had, so it, it, number one, it was a lot of people are real dogmatic sometimes about wanting to ranch full time. And man, I'm so grateful I had that side income and it, it it made all the difference and made it possible for me to kind of go without sometimes, uh, without having to rely on my startup cattle enterprise. But uh, so starting out, what I did, uh, I begged, borrowed, just begged and borrowed all <laughs> all my, uh, most of my assets to, I mean, most of my liabilities, I guess, to go and buy cows. I put all of my money into livestock and I bought the minimal amount of equipment and my equipment was in the way of, you know, I, I was buying old Rangers, cheap, small size pickups, and that's it. You know, a small tractor that, you know, nothing extravagant, nothing oversized. And in fact, it was all pretty undersized for the operation. But I put as much of my money as I could into purchasing cows. And I was very comfortable with cows because I had a false, and I say it's false, like I, I'm glad I bought cows and I love the cow calf enterprise, but I, I always thought if I overpaid, I was coming in in, in 2016 and the market had just corrected. Mm -hmm. And so I was really gun shy about overpaying for animals and seeing my, uh, the value of these animals just get cut in half or, or, you know, just getting hurt there, uh, price risk. And so I was very, uh, I was kind of buying I was buying $500 cows from the sale barn. Hmm. That's how I started. I eventually got a little bit better than that and uh, started buying cattle from neighbors. But I put all of my money into appreciating assets, you know, animals that were going to have calves or were at the bottom of the uh, depreciation curve, you know, mm -hmm. they had nowhere else to go but up or at yeah. least stay the same. Uh, yeah. Or yeah, the call value is pretty much yeah, that's yeah that's part of it. But their call value yeah. is pretty much what you're getting them for, almost. Yes, but um, I put as much of my of uh, my resources into cows as possible. Hmm. Yeah, well, there's a note there too that yeah. Before I'm glad you made that point and didn't just say I bought cows and I think that's the way to go because if somebody goes out right now and buys cows, that would be like the buying in thirteen fourteen of your era and stuff too, and you might have a little bit different experience than you were able to. Uh, do when you when you started yeah uh i got lucky with the timing uh i was conservative with my values and i felt like i could breed my way out of a hole if i overpaid for an animal which uh i'm not sure was exactly right i know a lot more now and i can talk about the sourcing animals and growing but uh for now i started out by focusing on appreciating assets yeah yeah well it's kind of too like i wonder if the idea, I'm curious for you, the idea of investing maybe in like water and fence infrastructure, did that look like if I get out of this business, I'm not going to get nearly what I put into it, but cows, if I do need to get out, at least I can resell them. Was that kind of a mindset at all or, you know, why you chose to go cows or I guess you just needed an operating business. So cows, you had to have something. 
Yes, absolutely. I needed the cows to pay for the fencing and water and all, you know, that kind of infrastructure. Uh, I had nothing without having that nucleus of a cow herd is the way I saw it, which is right. You, you got, I mean, I was in a livestock business, not that you have, you know, you can custom graze. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. I think kind of what we're hearing from everybody is being creative and about solving solutions. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I actually started and I, I tried a bison herd uh, randomly, but that's a different story. But I think the point is I, I was putting my money in livestock, uh, animals that were going to reproduce and increase in value or at least hold their value mm-hmm. while they uh, while they have calves. So, yeah. yeah, I saw that as uh, that was like my first mountain to climb was getting big enough to actually have money and value self-replicating i guess or compounding you know compounding yeah cool yeah and 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 we'll maybe dive into where you went from that uh, in a little bit but sage what were your early priorities and uh as far as investing and and did that change as time went on as well yeah it's a good question and i i think this is such a neat opportunity to be with you two guys because we all have just slightly different paths but there's a lot of commonalities there, you know, and, and largely driven by regionality. So, so where we are, you know, to get to 3 million people, I think, I, I think it's a huge, you know, it's probably a 10 hour circle to get that many people. Um, and so that, that drives, I was, I, I read the same things. Like I read Joel Salatin, I read uh, Alan nation and, uh, and Alan was, I thought more of a practitioner on the commodity side of things. He was really intelligent that way. And he, you know, he honed into that, that hundredth meridian, that, that break between the two different schools of thought and kind of, I I got a lot from him on, on how he thought about how we should proceed once I decided to be in the West, you know, um, enterprise selection was all about where we are scale and labor efficiency and things like that. And so I didn't know what land and nobody's going to know what land you have and you can't get picky on that. You know, if you're selected, I remember like selecting the first property, it wasn't a matter of like, I think I told you that in the past, Jared, it wasn't like, you know, oh, cool. This is the perfect place for my ideals. It was like, I want something. And so I'm just going to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then after that, that kind of dictates, yeah. yeah, that kind of dictates what you can do with it, you know? So, so our, our, when I was in that boat, my enterprise selection was very focused around what could cash flow and what could provide you know, the labor, uh, you know, match my labor needs. That's the two big derivatives there. You know, it matched what my labor could do. And, and I had to provide instant cash flow. So I didn't have any savings. I didn't have any, you know, it wasn't really a matter of like investment. It was more like create something from nothing, you know, yeah. if, if we could somehow do that. So that, that required a cash flow intensive business. And that's why custom grazing, you know, it immediately provided cash. And I remember getting that first check for a deposit, you know, that was a little bit larger than the amount that I had to pay for my deposit on the land, you know, and then it was like, oh, cool, there's some in between here, that's margin, you know, and I've got this to work with, and everything's just kind (laughs) of spiraled from there. Um, I think then you have to create that cash and then have something left over, which is hard to do, like, that's really hard to do, like custom grazing, intuitively is like a 5% return on investment business, it's probably run by a lot of people as a uh, break-even thing because for a lot of people, it's a side gig. Um, If you decide to run it profitably, you've got to be able to offer a service that's outstanding 
or or it doesn't work, you know. And even then, we focus on a fifteen percent margin there, net profit margin, which is very good for the business. That would be top line, I, w- I would guess, in the whole business. And uh, and that means we have to be very specific about who our client is. Um, but even the more importantly, we have to remember when I started out. I started out thinking that it was a product. I was product oriented. I wanted to be cow calf. I wanted to produce calves. You know, just like my grandpa did. And and I, and I really love that model. But that wasn't the model that could fit what we were doing. That didn't work on the first land base. I, I, I had no ability. Like, I tried. Uh, I had no ability to go buy cows or anything like that. And it would have been exceptionally silly of me to do it as I look back. So I'm really grateful that God didn't allow me to, like, jump off, like, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> cliff. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, the, the most important thing once you start to, or once our path, led us to start to go into some livestock. And what I think both done a good job of is um, you guys have something that cash flows, you know, and that's very important. So whatever your livestock is, you have to make sure it cash flows. You know, maybe that isn't cow-calf or breeding livestock. Um, I would say the stalkers is probably a nicer route, you know, and I would say like if we're, where we're kind of stalker heavy, we, uh, we, we, uh, we, we often will be running like a thousand plus, you know, in a herd. Well, that means maybe we could buy 50 and stalker cattle, we could commingle. So, so that's a question after the fact of if you want to focus on a product and you want to bring that product to market, do it at a fraction, but still maintain the, you know, the grazing principles of having the largest herd size that you can handle, uh, you know, in your context and so on and so forth. That was, you know, that's a good entrance. So, so, but it was after the fact. So if we get that deposit money, like I gave you that example, and and let's say you do have 17,000 and you spend eight and you have nine left, well, maybe you can spend half of that. Um, that's another lesson I got was keep a little cash, um, but you could spend half of that and buy four, you know, steers. That's still an entrance, you know, but be the other big thing that's really hard for us, it gets harder with breeding livestock, and you'd know this exceptionally well, Jared, is the ability to sell. We're just not good marketers in ag, and that's what everybody on this conversation, I, I see a lot of commonality there that to some level, we've all maintained some personality skills that have led us to be good marketers, and and that's so important. And that gives you an edge in ag if, if you're willing to market. Um, and and most people buy something and then you just kind of continue to want to keep it. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you get you, you know, you get in a period of illiquidity and you you aren't willing to liquidate. Like it's not even a thought. I, I can't count the number of times I've observed people in the cattle business, myself included for sure, who it's like not even an option to sell the cows and get liquid and pay that. You know, you're like, how else could I create money? And then it's like, oh, duh, I should just, uh, they're there, go sell those and there's money, you know, <laughs> and that's really hard to do. Um, and, and uh, so that's something we've got to bridge, you know, so once I think it's important to create cash flow first. So if you do invest in livestock, they have to be cash flow producing livestock. Um, as far as a, a portion, what attracted us to hair sheep specifically for livestock investment, and I think they're a great entrance for somebody, especially right now in the current market conditions is uh, uh, the ability of them to produce turnover or produce cash flow relatively quickly. I think pigs would fall into that. Fowl, you know, um, would fall into that category where all those create like a lot of cash kind of quickly, like low margin, but a lot. And they also reach scale relatively quickly. As far as what to invest in also at the beginning, uh, one of the things as I look back that was most helpful for us was all the skills that we could acquire. You know, I'd have, I, I, I invested in myself. So, like I, I might not have netted more than 
$2,500 and then I spent it on the ranching for profit yeah. school, you know? Yeah. And then on my Tuesday of the ranching for profit school had already made 30,000 more dollars, you know, that's kind of, that's the kind of ROI. That's yeah. the most co highly compounding ROI you can get is those sort of skills that you can sink mm -hmm. into your head and you can change your mind, you know? And so, yeah. um, as far as basic things, you know, that were helpful to us from a startup in our context, which is the big land base and, and, you know, stockmanship skills were, were very important to get, um, but, and the grazing skills. So as far as basic tools, like an ATV or a horse, I think either could, could suffice a pickup and a horse trailer, um, a portable chute with 20 panels and, uh, some grazing management tools, a little bit of portable water line, portable water tank, and, uh, uh, you know, some temp fence can go a long ways to somebody starting a grazing business. But, you know, that, those are luxuries. Those come after you've, those are a little bit of after tax dollars investments, but those particular ones are high return ones that probably satisfy the capital requirements of paying for a hundred percent in the first year. Um, you know, you can't, you can't ship cattle from a, from a land unless you can like put some set of corrals together to get them out, yeah. you know, and stuff. Yeah. And so that sudden, once you've got that, you're, you're, you've got a lot more, open opportunities on land bases that you didn't have right before then. So those are, mm -hmm. those are pretty important within the first couple of years. Um, but it continues to surprise me. We've had clients come and buy say sheep from us and we sold some sheep to some awesome, awesome clients not that long ago. And they made, they made a remark. They have a couple hundred sheep and they said, well, gosh, we have way nicer sheep handling facilities than you do. And they're right. Like we don't have that nice stuff. And I just, I just don't believe in putting your money in that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, beyond the basic necessity. So we, we generally don't buy a capital thing, uh, meaning like a pickup or a vehicle or you know, a yeah. tractor until we want it really, really bad for like two years. And then we get it, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I like, I like that. I think it's just cool that, you know, not one of you mentioned the first thing we went out and bought was a new John Deere you know, whatever tractor. And then, you know, we didn't go out and buy the, the big shiny, fancy, expensive thing or, yeah. And I've seen, yeah, some of the fanciest farmyards probably don't make the most money maybe or something too. And the, the focus is on, yeah, return on investment that comes from focus on, on the business. And so, I mean, Sage, you mentioned like this, what you did early, you didn't have money to invest. What you were investing was what you were going to do with your time. And it would have been really easy to just spend all your time. You just go out and build fence, you know, hammer staples or whatever, move fence or whatever, but you, you were in, you spent your time focusing on the business model, each one of you. And I know like with Vanny, I think we talked quite a bit about how intentional you were at the beginning uh, in your, in your previous podcast, I should say about making sure your business model made sense. You were going to do this at scale and you were going to, you were going to make it work. Like you, you did it right. You didn't just do what everyone else maybe would do. It's just, uh, you were intentional. Intentionality is huge yeah. with all three of you. And I, I think that's a, uh, that's, that's pretty important. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I just think it's, it's neat because these are parallel models and I would especially like, I think Vanny, you're kind of in between the two models, you know, but I'm on one end of a spectrum and, and Chris, you're on the other end, but, but they're chasing after the same things, you know, any startup has to have, has to create something from nothing, you know, and be entrepreneurial in what it's doing. And so I think, I think that's a really important takeaway is that, that there's, there's multiple ways to do this. I think you could be successful doing what Chris is doing here, even in a low population environment, if you were, you know, if you were mentally adept enough to, to form that, you know, with like, like he was mentioning the, the internet, right. And so suddenly, suddenly you can market to everybody from a long ways away, you know? So, so it's just important to know that there's parallel tracks. There's many ways to do it. 
what's also an important commonality is it's not the way it was done, you know, and we're in a rapidly changing world. And, and so we're often like creating a world that's not the one we're in right now, you know? And so I don't know what our business is going to look like in three years, but it's going to be different than it looks today. And, and all of us are willing to change and adapt all the time. And that's, that's the kind of continuing ed a person has to continue to do is like, what's this going to create next year, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah and one thing I'll just echo what Sage is saying, you know, I went to the ranch for profit school. My wife and I were, I think we we're cleaning out some drawers one time and she just saw all these livestock production worksheets where I am just running scenario after scenario after scenario. And it's, it just like kind of blew her away. And it is like, you know, I don't know. I didn't know uh, that investing in yourself, the, the, building this, learning the skills to evaluate these opportunities and taking the time to actually evaluate them is, uh, it's so important, but it's almost like, it's not, it's not about the results of the plan, but the actual process of the planning that's important. And it, it you know, it, the forecasting is way more important than the act than, you know, taking time to look back at historical and make sure your, your historicals are accurate, which do both. But, uh, yeah, it is just, you cannot, I can't overstate how important that is. So I was just going to say, and I don't know anything about ranching for profit. And again, I think we're in very different businesses all in agriculture, but you know, we're very much like Alan Savory, holistic management worksheets, planning, you know, and I think that's a common theme, right? Is just, if you don't plan, you're not going to get there. Right. And you've got to have it written down. You've got to have it organized. You've got to know what is going to happen when, and be able to see, Hey, <laughs> Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, what do I do? And, you know, in advance, but if you don't have a plan and you don't have it written down, it's not going to come true. Right. So Chris, I'd be really interested to hear your perspective. I, I like how you think about things. If you did go to a, a ranching for profit school, you and your, your son should go check it out. I'd be curious to hear how you, uh, what you get out of that and what you would, what you'd learn. But uh, Vanny, go, go ahead with yours. I, uh, your thought. One thing, Chris, just listening to you, I mean, you've got some real enterprise, uh, skills like you you and it it's really uh the business you're talking about is uh definitely agricultural but it's 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 way more advanced than my my model my model is very simple commodity based and uh it's really impressive hearing you talk about about the business you're building well and that's the thing right is we we deliberately did not want to be in the commodity business and again i have no history of this up until 2010 you know, I read a book and it was coming out of a different business. And, um, you know, I, I thought this was important on many, many factors, environmentally, you know, community wise, you know, like, you know, I live in a rural place that is, was, you know, dying and being emptied out by globalization. And so, you know, there are a lot of boxes to check there, but you know, one of the things we wanted to do was be as vertically integrated as possible, control our own destiny. Right now we buy calves. And, you know, because of everything that's going on with call cows two years ago, like calf shortage, and, you know, suddenly the price of calves have doubled. So that's that's caused me some pain, but because I control the customer and I control the price, and we've been able to make our ground so much more productive over the years, you know, I haven't had to pass that that cost on to my customers as much, right? So, but we're also now investing in cows. And as I mentioned, setting up this custom grazer 
to raise our cows for us and give us babies so I can start to get a little more control over our calf supply as well. Mm. But, yeah. you know, you know, as my wife says from birth to bun, you know, we want to, we want to control it all. And yeah. um, well, I, I, that's why I wanted to get both the different, like all the different perspectives on. I think it's kind of cool how Vanny is in a commodity production business. Sage is kind of more so in like, he has his livestock enterprise, but in his operating business, he's more of a service provider. And Chris is more of a finalized product meat, you know, provider. You're each are different, offering different kind of perspectives of this chain. And I wanted to offer those different perspectives to people thinking about getting into this to think any one of these ways can work, but no one of the ways is wrong. And you know, each one is going to provide their own challenges. What are you, what challenges do you want to overcome? Do you want to figure out the challenges? Of how do I scale a commodity business? Because you likely can't make a living producing commodity calves on 40 with 40 cows or something like you got to, you're going to have to come up with different ways to the challenge in, in a commodity business is maybe more of a scaling business or something like that versus a Custom grazing businesses, you know, how do I access the livestock owners? How do I provide a good service consistently that I can, uh, you know, grow this, that people will come to me, that people will want to come back? Or Chris in, in, in his model is more like, you know, how do I build this market? You have to create your own market. There's not a simple, just drop it off at the sale barn or something like that. And, and each one has got different challenges and people maybe need to analyze what their goals are, what they want to do, what they think they would enjoy. There's a lot of people that would have no interest in doing what Chris is doing. And there's a lot of people that love the idea of working one-on-one -on -one with their consumer and handing the box to the person who's going to feed their family with it tonight. It's a pretty rewarding experience. And so I think there needs to be a little bit of self-analysis before you dive into a business of farmer ranch production businesses. You know, what, what do I enjoy? What do I want to spend my days doing? What challenges do I feel I'm most capable of or most would enjoy, you know, overcoming? because um, there's going to be challenges in each. Have you talked to any goat grazers, Jared? Uh, I, I try and listen to couple. most episodes, so I may have missed one. But I just feel like, man, like I wish someone would come to me saying, Chris, I have someone to clean up your fences, pay me $200, you know, $500 for this week, and I will bring my goats there, and then I'll take them away. And I don't know. It just... I have some friends in Pennsylvania that have a lot of reclaimed like coal mining ground and, and fracking ground that, you know, um, you know, they, they hunt on it. And I'm just like, man, if someone come in and, you know, these mobile goat people, I feel like there's a business there. Well, there's a lot of people that are doing it. And I was just looking at Star Creek. I think I'm trying to find it now. Star Creek, something out in California. I had them on once and they talked, they have several thousand goats and sheep that they do custom grazing on. And then Jordan Meyer, I don't remember what I talked about him with specifically, because he's got a bunch of different enterprises, but he's doing goat grazing. Uh, and he's actually, <laughs> I think he's doing some awesome stuff. You can check him out on Wholesome Family Farms or Wholesome Family Genetics. He's got goats that he sells, but he's leasing out his goats to goat grazing groups. So he's getting compensated just for ownership of the goats. And then he still gets the goat kids back. And so, I mean, yeah. it's like, there's so many ways to do agriculture and to do ranching. It's phenomenal. And that's, so yeah, that's, that's a great point. Like, and these, yeah, the, that's a good point. There's three folks here with three different perspectives that represent a very small portion of the options out there. <laughs> if there's nothing, nothing else you guys want to talk about with that specifically, I, the one question we're already over an hour here and uh, gosh, we didn't even get to 
like half the questions I had listed here, but the one that I for sure want to get each of your perspectives on, and and we can don't feel like it has to go short. We can dive into each one of these more is more of like a specific scenario. If somebody comes to you and they're whatever age doesn't matter from 18 to 45, 60, whatever. And they say, I want to get into the production business, a livestock production uh, business. And I want to do it full time. I'm curious what that advice would look like, what you would tell that person. Um, and and you can take a few moments and, and think about that. It's kind of a big question and we can come back to you if something pops up into your head after you, you go first. But if, if anybody wants to jump in with that and, and say what your advice would be for that individual who says, I want to be a full-time livestock producer as soon as possible. Well, I mean, if you're going the direct marketing route, you know, and I think a couple of us have said it, but, you know, chickens, right? They're fast. They're, they're, they're not that difficult. Um, they're, they're easy to sell. They're easy to process. Um, and you can get cash flowing that way as well. You know, and, and as I said, we're, you know, we did 10,000 chickens this year. We're, we still have our last batch to go on this week. Um, you know, 400 turkeys, you know, we're kind of looking to get out of that now, you know, because our beef business and our cattle, you know, we have 350 head that we're grazing using a total grazing method, you know, two to four moves a day. Um, that part is going really, really well. The chickens are kind of becoming a little bit of a distraction, but I still need them for my customers, right? We got out of pigs. We partner with another, well, Greg Gunthrop, a very kind of mm -hmm. famous pig farmer here. So now we're offering his pork. You know, Greg was very much going to the retail route, restaurants and things like that. And as that business is petering, you know, he's not quite set up as much on the direct consumer side that we are. So that makes a good partnership for us. Um, the dairy is kind of the same thing where, you know, we're working with an organically certified Amish dairy. Indiana, it's not legal to sell um, milk, raw milk for human consumption. So it's sold as pet milk. Um, what people do with it after it leaves our hands, I don't know. But um, it's going really, really well. And again, we're able to create an outlet for them and we can just focus on our regenerative grass-fed beef and um, partner with other folks for the other things. Yeah. Uh, but chickens is the fastest path, right? Yeah. Well, you might get a few people reaching out to you who want to raise chickens for you now after you throw that out here. But uh... I'd, I'd love to hear some pitches because <laughs> we've got everything you need if, <laughs> cool. to, uh, you know, including the land. So yeah. chicken farmers wanted. Well, that's even, and I don't know if you need more labor on your farm or something like that, but that's something I've thought would be cool someday as a direct marketer is like, if if I have employees that I need to say, you know, I need you to work for me X amount of hours per week, here's your jobs, but you also have the ability to use our market to start your own enterprise. That'd be kind of a cool thing if you could get somebody working with you that, you know, can build their own enterprise, but tap we have all our land, all our land has been certified organic simply because it's, it is right. Like, we're not doing anything, so why not get that stamp? But um, so there's an, a vegetable farmer at our farmer's market that wants to expand and they'd like to be organic. And I'm like, well, I have all this organic land. And in fact, the the 15 feet between the road and my fence that I mow is all organic, right? So why don't you grow gardens on the outside of my fences, Right. And so now you have organically certified ground that I don't need. I'm not using that you can run. I mean, I probably have 20 acres outside my fence 
wow. that across all of our farms that, I'm, you know, so we're going to try that this year. And, you know, so, you know, back to Joel Salatin stacking and being creative, gosh, how much land in America is outside of the fence that, that you could grow vegetables on? Yeah. Well, that's just a, it's a creative way for people who want to get into agriculture too, is maybe it's partnering with someone like you to do something like that and, you know, tapping yeah, into somebody else's land market. to me. I don't yeah. want to mow. I don't want to manage it. For sure. That's why I was looking for goats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Vanny and Sage, you've had a little bit of time to think about what your response to that person might be. Do one of you want to jump in with your thoughts? It's it's pretty neat. I've had some conversations with people who've asked that and kind of that very thing. And what I've realized is there's that's a that's a position. So that'd be a positional statement. Like I want to get into livestock production full time. And it's really it was a important part of our path to figure out what our interest was behind that. Like what values do we have that shaped us thinking that way? And, and the quicker, I wish I'd spent more time on vision and like why just understanding why I thought the way I did and why I, you know, because that would have helped me have a more direct route to where I am today and, and where we're going in the future, because I've spent a lot of time wandering, you know, the wider path and other paths and not, not on the path I should have been on. And because I was following market trends and fancy things and I, I, I didn't know, you know, um, noise and, and I would say that, you know, that's, that's the, in a conversation I had just last week with a young person who was starting out, you know, that's was my advice to that person was, figure out why you want to do this, you know, because that leads to, uh, you know, and that could lead to any of the three paths that you're seeing here on, on this call or any of the, you know, thousand other routes that they could have to be successful. Um, I, the first thing, great kudos that you've, su you've successfully decided that you want to do it full time. Like that was an important part of your question um, or, or, you know, be, be fully, fully self-directed but that's a that's a position right there why do you want to do that is it because of the freedom that comes with that um because i will tell you as a live as a as a business owner uh there's not there's not that much freedom and if you and if you're an employee now and you're thinking you want to get out and you're never gonna have to deal with people again well that's the last that you, you should correct that way of thinking right away because because you're going to deal with more people as a business owner than you ever dealt with as an employee and, and so just, just face that, you know? And so, um, I mean, God put us on this earth to deal with other people. <laughs> and so we better just get over that pretty quickly. Um, but, but, uh, you know, in, in regards to, you know, being able to be in livestock production and be full time, I think that's a very worthwhile objective. Um, I would recommend like Simon Sinek, start with why find your why, uh, living forward is a great book to help. Those are easy reads. They're easy process. And, the quicker you can hone in on what you're really wanting to accomplish with your life, it will probably direct your, your steps. And, and, uh, as time went on, you know, I think you can then build the skills needed to get down that path and get down it quicker. And so I know that's a really circuitous way of saying that. And it might seem strange for many people, like what you're saying to take a step back before I take, you know, this launch forward. And that's absolutely what I'm saying. Uh, I mean, in my position, I was unmarried. 
I was right out of college. I didn't have anything tying me down. And so that largely drove me to just go take chances and go lease something. Whereas like Vanny, you were saying you didn't, you, you really admired having that side income for a few years before you got fully operational, you know, and be able to sustain yourself from your operation. Sure. And I, I think that's great because, because without that, you know, that's just context, you know? So for some that have a family, you know, you dare not put yourself in that position of taking on, for goodness sakes, a land payment, uh, even a cow note, you know, that's, and so I would throw another path out that we're kind of working on with our business, which is largely like an employee ownership model on the regenerative, uh, regen LLC. And we're allowing, uh, after a few years after investment, them to buy into the business and then they could start scaling livestock ownership on the side as a client. Um, and we do give favorable rates and favorable positioning to those clients, as long as it fits within, you know, the larger thing of what we're doing. And that's, that's kind of our way of helping younger or, or startups of any age, you know, get going. And so if somebody wants to enterprise stack also on the resource that we have, I think that's very viable. As Chris said, there's all kinds of things you can do to stack. And so remember that we can grow three dimensional, um, on everything that we're doing. And, and, uh, so, you know, let's let's stack let's do more with what we've got so the best thing in the world for music to my ears is hearing an employee coming to me and saying hey i've got a new idea i would like to pay you a little bit of rent for this little bit of space but here's what i'm going to do with it and here's the time that i'm going to do that i'm still going to do my job on that front i'm going to say hey let's build a plan that gets you there and if you want to go self-employed within 10 years let's build that plan because that's starting to be progress that's starting to rejuvenate these ag communities you know so that's exciting yeah. Love that. That's awesome. Thanks, Sage. Yeah. Vanny, uh, what about your thoughts? <laughs> it's always tough yeah, to be the it. last one after two no, like that. So good luck. <laughs> I'm grateful because I would have said something stupid before before these <laughs> smart guys were talking. No, no. no but, but seriously, uh, I think what I hear a lot of and kind of something that I can relate to in my journey was a lot of uh, self-reflection and kind of listening to yourself, determining your values. And for somebody in my situation, I wasn't, uh, you know, I'd grown up around ag, but not never in it. I'd never, I'd never, you know, weaned calves before. Uh, I'd never, I don't know. I'd never worked cattle on my own. I've never done any of this stuff. Uh, Didn't have a whole lot of hands-on experience. And I would just, I would, there's, there's a few thoughts rolling around in my head, but one of the things is just start doing it, working for somebody, getting some experience. You know, I'm a little sad to say, but one thing, you know, my, the first place my mind went was you're going to have to work hard, you know, and really caution them to how tough it can be at times. And I'm sad to say that because I, I don't want this to be that way. And I, I want ag to be an inviting place for young people and for new blood. I love agriculture. I love raising cattle. I love living in the country. I love rural lifestyles. And I think Sage is really onto something as he talks about employee development, personal development, developing, giving avenues to people to uh, really work themselves into self-employment being their own boss their own business whatever with with not as much risk as just taking the leap but again i I think a lot of this stuff i see a lot of overflow to a lot of other things in life but it just involves a lot of time for self-reflection a lot of listening to yourself knowing yourself i mean holistic management grant your profit 
countless different business business advice books or or there's so many different books that touch on the same topic but you know the mission vision know your why uh all this stuff is uh it's kind of getting to the core of why you want to do you know like sage was saying getting to the core of why why these values how how these opportunities line up with your values and how to really evaluate which one's the best for you but at the center of it i would just when i was getting started i was so naive and i'm so grateful for that because that it's really in retrospect you know it, it, i've come a long way it's been a at times it's been a hard road i wouldn't change anything but it's it, it's that naivete of being young and just not really knowing but I think that's what it takes sometimes. So just getting started in some respect while minimizing your risk, keeping your options as open as possible, being as open-minded as possible. Just there's so much out there. You really have to soak it all up and take it all in. But I guess, uh, I don't know, you're, you're going to be where you are and have the opportunities presented to you for a reason. Evaluate those and, um, and don't take them for granted. But yeah, I, even if it's just... Uh, if you have to gain the experience working for somebody else doing what you eventually think you want to do, that is, uh, I would go work for them and uh, mm-hmm. and not be afraid to work for them as part of a longer process of of attaining, you know, getting to where you want to be. Awesome, that was uh, that was awesome, guys. Thank you so much for for doing this. If people want to reach out to you or or have questions for you, uh, and and. If you'd rather not put that out there, that's fine too. I can cut that out of here. But if people want to learn more or anything, where would you direct them to 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 find you guys? Chris, we can start with you. Um, we're Tyner Pond. Yeah, Tyner Pond Farm. Facebook message is probably the quickest way to get me. If you're on Facebook, uh, otherwise through our website, our contact us page. Cool. Awesome. Um, we'll and that's Tyner T Y N E R Pond Farm, right? Exactly. Cool. Awesome. All right, S- Sage. Yes. Um, our website's askinlandandlivestock.com, and I'm pretty excited. We're going to actually be doing a rebrand and a launch of our new website for our operating business, which is regen.llc, and we should be able to see that in January sometime. And I'd encourage anybody to email me personally at uh, lowercase letters saskin12 at gmail.com. So that's S-A-S-K-I-N-1-2 at gmail.com. I do my best to keep up with uh, response and it really means a lot to try to, <laughs> to hopefully just give somebody a little, a little, you know, anything. So I've, I'm, I, so many people have mentored me. So I'm, I'm chuckling here. Cause I, I think, I don't know your average response time to my emails is probably like two minutes. Uh, you get back <laughs> to me so fast, Sage. So yeah, he's, he tries to keep up. He does a pretty darn good job, but uh, Vanny, uh, how about you? Yeah, I'm working on putting together a website, but you know, Instagram. I don't think I've posted anything on Instagram in years. But <laughs> yeah. uh, so the name of my business is Parisima Pastures. That's P-U-R-I-S-I-M-A then Pastures, and I've got a website. We're working towards ParisimaPastures.com. But again, just reach out to me on email or uh, that's VannyCollins at gmail.com, and that's V. A N N I E C O L L I N S at gmail.com. And uh, I hope this has been helpful. If I can help anybody with anything or, you know, help anybody achieve their dreams or, or progress towards them, don't hesitate to reach out. 
Well, thank you guys so much. This was so fun and so cool. I, I really appreciated you you doing this. And, and I'll throw out a, a just a thing for the listener here. If if you like this kind of style of conversation, or if you have ideas for other kind of little panel discussions that might be good ones to have on, uh, reach out to me. Uh, let me know, podcast at gmail.com or any other uh, the social medias. I'd love to hear if you uh, like and enjoy listening to this style of a conversation. But again, uh, Chris, Sage, and, and Vanny, thank you so much. This was this was awesome. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Jared. It's quite an opportunity to even be a part of this. Um, can't say how much it means. So thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much, Jared. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.